0: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, I'm Dr. Renee Beale, science communicator and curator at the Royal Society of Victoria. I'm delighted to be presenting this climactic special podcast for National Science Week 2019. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kate Selway, an earth scientist from Macquarie University in Sydney. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Renee. So I thought we could go right back before the time that Kate Selway was an earth scientist mm -hmm. and talk about some of your early experiences with going to school and perhaps maybe discovering a love for science.
1: I think I've always been fascinated by the world. Probably in science, my first love through school was always physics, much more. I didn't really discover earth science until I got to university. But also, to be honest, when I was at school, I like I, I really love a lot of different things. I think English was probably my favourite subject at school, and I always loved languages as well. I did Japanese and German through school, and I loved art as well. I still do a lot of sewing and design and all sorts of different things. So I actually found it really challenging when I was getting towards the end of school to decide um, what it was that I was going to do, and Part of my decision was really just being able to continue with all those things that I enjoyed, and I think that, save with my love of English, I can still read books <laughs> really easily, but it 's harder to have a lab in your backyard and do some science <laughs> as a hobby um, so that was part of my reason for continuing on with with science. Then, when I started university, uh, my plan was to do a physics major, and I, I loved thinking about how maths controls how our universe works and i love astronomy and i love um yeah i love lots of things about physics and it was really just in first year actually i just needed an extra subject um and somebody convinced me to do geology um, and i didn't expect it to be terribly exciting to be honest i just thought it's looking at rocks and how interesting are rocks and then i discovered the rocks are <laughs> really really interesting actually and that instead of just looking at boring rocks where Learning about huge processes going on in the earth, and that even in looking at a rock, it's looking at this amazing story of change that maybe this rock was deposited as a sediment 500 million years ago and then it got buried to 20 kilometres in the crust and got heated up and all the minerals changed and then thrust up in a mountain belt and then eventually ended up on a riverbank for me to find it somewhere. And learning to read those stories in the rocks um, I really really loved and then also that it took me took me outside it took me out of a lab and it took me out of a in front of a computer screen into the field and being able to see a bunch of amazing places in the world.
0: So many people wouldn't know this but I remember from science degree that actually earth science has a lot of physics in it actually surprisingly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think one of the great things about Earth science is the earth is really really complex and there's all these really big processes going on and most of them are really hidden from us as well. It's 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 a big puzzle and it's really really hard to figure out that puzzle. And to answer any of those questions you actually need a bunch of different strands of science. So so I'm a geophysicist, so I my background is more in the physics and I use I guess physics to look inside the earth Um, and I think about how waves passing through the earth interact with different properties of the earth so there's a lot of physics in that but then I also need to think a a lot about chemistry so different processes going on the earth then maybe there's a fluid that's moved through a region and, and the chemicals in that fluid have reacted with the rock and then you end up with a different rock composition and that will mean that when a seismic wave passes through it it behaves differently and interact with that rock differently. So I need to know the geology, but then I need to know the physics as well and I need to know the chemistry too. And so it's a science that requires a broad knowledge of a lot of different sciences and, um, and the ability to draw all of those strands together and see how they all interrelate. And that's actually one of the things I, I find really exciting about it. You don't end up locked into a very small niche. To be a good geoscientist, you're always being pushed to um, expand your understanding more broadly. And also, the
0: universe is kind of your lab, so you're not stuck indoors.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. So my research, I'm mainly interested in the Earth's mantle, especially the upper mantle, so and, and the crust as well. So from the surface down to about 400 kilometres depth. And this is the depth in the Earth where we have the tectonic plates, and then beneath that, the mantle's flowing and kind of oozing around and convecting and moving those plates around and I'm interested in how those processes going on in the deeper earth control what happens at the surface so control where we have earthquakes and where we have volcanoes where we have mountain ranges where we have oceans and so as part of that then it kind of means that I need to go to the places in the earth where the earth's doing really interesting things and so my research just taken me all over the world all seven continents i'm i'm yet to i'm yet to do a field survey in asia but that's the last continent that i haven't kind of dug a hole and deployed one of my instruments on yet and then going to the places and experiencing things and going there for the science but then as part of that having these incredible life experiences that had i not made that fortuitous decision in first year to pick up geology, I, I would have never been able to go to those places and, and experience those things.
0: So, when you were a, a child, do you remember being particularly excited about being out in nature? Was that something that. You know,
1: not hugely. Yeah. Like, so we were, as a family, we weren't a family that weren't camping, uh, we didn't go hiking, um, I did not like being outside, but actually, my mum my will often say, when my sister and I were little and she would be encouraging us to, you know, go out to the park and play and we would be happier just sitting inside reading books. Uh, so I was not a really outdoorsy kid. And that's actually another, another reason that I'm so glad that I happened to pick up geology because if it had not been for that, then by myself, I don't think I would have ended up kind of learning and discovering that I actually really love those things. So yeah, my first camping trips in my life were on my undergraduate field trips um, and I was borrowing tents from people and I had no idea what I was doing but then over time discovered that, that just how great it is and how much I love it. And so now now I get to do those things as my job, but I also do those things for fun as well.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So originally what drew you, well, obviously it was fortuitous that you discovered geology in the first place, but then the research question drew you in and then you know the love of being out in the field came after that almost or, or at the same time as that.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I found it a really enjoyable subject to study at uni for a bunch of reasons. So I really loved the field trips but I also loved that doing that meant that I got to know the people I was studying with really well. I wasn't in a huge physics lecture theatre with 400 other people that you're never going to talk to. I was on, you know, in a class with 30 people and you're there spending two weeks in the bush together and getting to know each other really well and also getting to know your lecturers really well and probably partly through that then gain more of an understanding of some of the bigger questions that if I went on in earth science, that I could be could be looking at. So yeah, so it was it was those things. It was discovering just how interesting it was and and how much we don't know about the earth as well. It's also a it really is still a science where huge discoveries are still yet to be made. It's not something where like we basically understand what's going on and we're just filling in the details. You know, even plate tectonics. It was only fifty years ago that people kind of really. All agreed that plate tectonics is happening, and that that totally underpins everything in in geology. And there's still a lot of things even now accepting that plate tectonics happens, but there are still a lot of things that we don't understand about what's actually going on in the Earth that allows that to happen. There's always an astonishing statistic to me that center of the Earth is a bit over six thousand three hundred kilometers away, and the deepest hole we've ever drilled is only twelve kilometers. So it's just this tiny pinprick at the surface of the earth that we've actually looked at and everything else we just have to use our imagery kind of like taking x-rays of the earth putting out sensors on the surface and looking into the inside to get the best idea that we possibly can of um of what could be down there and it's it's really really hard because it's huge and there's not many ways that we can see inside it that got me really excited as well that that these are these are big questions still to be answered um, and it just kind of blew me away that we didn't know a bunch of this stuff, you know. And
0: well, it's um, quite interesting, isn't it? Because we've sent things into the sky and into space a lot further than that distance, really. Exactly, so yeah. In
1: many ways, we know more about what's going on in outer space than we do beneath our feet in yeah. our own planet. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's really exciting and, and that those processes affect so much of what goes on on the surface, um, both in terms of the development of the planet going from, you know, initially the Earth was a, a ball of molten rock to go from that to now this planet where we have trees and oceans and air that we can breathe. And it's these processes going on in the Earth that, that control that. For me also, to be honest, as a, as a university student, the fact that there was a prospect of jobs in earth science was, was a factor as well. It turned out then when I finished university, uh, there weren't any jobs. <laughs> um, and I think since I finished, uh, I guess my, I finished my undergrad um, in the early 2000s. And at that time, most of the jobs were in the mining and oil industries, at least I'm from Adelaide, at least in South Australia. But since then, it's kind of expanded and there's a lot more jobs in the environmental sector as well. And so that's great as well. I think, so then I think a lot of different options for people for me I love going outside and I love the fieldwork aspect but there's there's lots of people who don't enjoy that and there are lots of jobs that don't involve any of that as well
0: excellent so let's come around to you now mm-hmm. in terms of some of your recent projects and what you're trying to you know the, the places that you're going at the moment mm-hmm. on your camping trips <laughs> um, and also what you're trying to discover about the things that we don't know the the known unknowns if you like mm-hmm. of our own planet
1: The most recent project that I'm working on, that I've just come back from the field about a month ago, is working in Greenland. Um, And this is a big project that's actually funded by the Norwegian Research Council. I lived and worked in Oslo for a while and still have colleagues over there. So this is a project that fundamentally its goal is to improve our estimates of how much ice is being lost from the Greenland Ice sheet. And we actually need to understand what's going on in the deep earth to be able to do that and that's because the ice sheets are a big weight sitting on the surface of the earth and when they melt that weight is released and the earth rebounds beneath them kind of like if you've got a person sitting on a memory foam mattress and they stand up and then gradually that mattress will rebound and so the earth does the same way and in the same way it's gradual it doesn't happen immediately and so we don't actually know how much the earth, how quickly the earth is rebounding beneath Greenland and Antarctica. And so that's what our project is doing, to take some measurements to, at least in Greenland, to figure that out. And that's important because we estimate or, or calculate how much ice is being lost from those ice sheets by using uh, satellite measurements of the elevation of the ice sheet and gravity measurements of the mass there. So as the ice melts, then the elevation goes down and the mass decreases. But tied up in those measurements is this signal from the Earth rebounding. So you've got the ice sheet elevation going down, but then the Earth coming up underneath. And it's a much smaller signal than the ice, but it's still a signal that's in there, and we just we don't know how big it is, and so we don't know how much it's affecting our ice loss calculations. So That's the goal of our project. We, um, we just spent uh, a month on the ice, sort of close to the centre of the Greenland ice sheet, deploying a bunch of our instruments and making measurements that will, will eventually tell us how quickly the earth is rebounding. And this is a big project. We'll be going back certainly next year and if we can stretch our money enough the year after as well, because that rate of rebound is likely to change across Greenland as well. So we want to get um, a big array of measurements so we
0: can see how that rate changes. Yeah, fantastic. So you had been and studied in Antarctic and also um, Greenland prior to this project as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I've spent a couple of seasons in Antarctica and I've also done a lot of work in East Africa and in Australia as well. All of those projects were more just looking at geological structures. So I guess um, had more just straight out Uh, academic Mm. questions Mm. so east africa is a good example so in east africa fascinating people may have heard of the east africa rift where um, essentially there's a big plume in the earth beneath east africa and it's tearing the continent apart eventually uh, east africa will rift apart and be a separate continent from the rest of africa and this kind of process has happened throughout Earth history, but East Africa is the best place to be seeing it happening right now. And there are lots of really interesting questions there, but the question that really got me the most interested is that we can, see, we can see this rift and we can see part of the continent starting to tear away, but some parts of the continent seem to be stronger and are not rifting and some parts seem to be weaker and they are rifting. And I was interested in what's the difference, what makes some parts weaker and some parts stronger. Spent five years working in East Africa with with that kind of goal to, to answer that question. And I think it's really interesting now, I guess 10, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought about how important it was to know how quickly the Earth's uplifting beneath Greenland and Antarctica. But the results that we've got out of that more academic work in East Africa, that we now know how to take these measurements and how to understand how strong the Earth is which will determine how quickly it's rebounding. So we've done all of this work that we can now take to Greenland and apply in this situation where now sort of quite urgently we need to be able to answer these really big questions about the Earth that are quite esoteric questions, how the structure of things hundreds of kilometres beneath our feet, but they end up um, in ways that we couldn't have necessarily predicted becoming really, really urgently
0: important for humanity. In the time that you've been there, are you noticing noticeable differences I mean Greenland so I was there just just last year and this year so
1: I hasn't for me it hasn't been a long enough uh, time to see those differences but I actually was there this year when they had sort of the warmest day the earliest in the season that they ever have Um, so I arrived in late May which is just kind of the beginning of their summer and it was like minus 25 degrees it was really really cold And within a couple of weeks, and and really cold, but the kind of temperatures that would be expected. Um, So maybe by the height of summer, it would be expected to be maybe minus 10 degrees. And within a couple of weeks, it had warmed up. And uh, one day, we were actually away from station, deploying one of our instruments, commenting to each other that it seemed quite warm. And actually, the the snow scooters that we were driving, we had to stop because the plastic on the front of the snow scooter started to melt. (laughs) And when we got back to camp, saw that the temperature, it was... Was only just above zero, but it got to 0.4 degrees, which has, in all of the years that people have been making temperature measurements there, it's never, never been above zero that early in the season, um, and it was this just an extreme melt event. You, you're in the middle of an ice sheet, you're hundreds of kilometres from the coast, um, and really, really bizarre to feel the surface of the snow start to get a bit soft and melty. Um, it was really, yeah, really extraordinary. Um, and a lot of the people I was there with had been there in 2012, which was a famous melt year, um, when at this camp, as I say, in the middle of the ice sheet, uh, there was a rainbow in the sky because it was raining. I mean it just it shouldn't happen. Um, So that was extraordinary to be there for that. Um, And now just in this last week, now Greenland's had the the biggest melt event in the day that it's ever had. So I personally haven't been there enough years to see it, but just looking back at the records, um, I can see that these times that I'm there are extremely unusual. And you can see you fly, in, in Greenland at least, to get to these research camps that are in the centre of the ice sheet. Actually the US Air Force National Guard do training flights so you get there kind of in this big beefy US military plane and you get strapped in kind of sideways in it and there are tiny little portholes that you can try to get a little look out of. You take off from the coast of Greenland it's all mountains and as you just fly inland you fly over the edge of the ice sheet and eventually come to the centre. And it is extraordinary as you're flying, especially over the edge of the ice sheet, just hundreds and hundreds of melt pools that you can see uh, on the surface. And there are kind of this iridescent popsicle blue colour. It seems like a colour that shouldn't exist in nature. There's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And the old timers have been going back for decades and decades say so that it's, in the old times you'd, you'd see a couple, um, but, but nowhere near these, these melt events that we're seeing now.
0: Wow. So just sort of coming full circle, I suppose, with all this research that you're collecting, obviously you're collecting all this data and, and, you know, as you've been speaking, it's obvious why we need to keep these records so that we know that things are changing and things are always evolving and changing and then using that data to try and understand what the – what what the consequences will be for that and how the earth will actually respond to to things like losing losing ice on its surface. What are you hoping are the outcomes of what other people, what other researchers or other people might pick up your data and, and do with that data moving forward?
1: This season uh, in Greenland was a really enjoyable season for me. Uh, the camp that we were at was called East Grip Camp. It's really an ice drilling camp and I haven't been in an ice drilling camp before. And so most of the scientists there were ice sheet scientists. So people drilling this ice core and people making measurements on the ice core. And also just ice sheet modelers who were trying to predict what's going to happen to the ice sheet and how it's going to evolve with time. It was fascinating for me because I, I, as I haven't seen that stuff before. I loved learning a lot about the ice sheet science that I didn't know But also, I think one of the really nice things about camps like that is you have then all these different scientists from different fields all shoved together, living in each other's pockets for a month, talking a lot about science. So places like that where we can really see how our very different fields can relate to each other. So for instance, these questions I was talking about, about the earth uplift, uh, they'll feed directly into the ice sheet models. But part of the reason, well actually the main reason that the drilling at that camp is because The camp sits on an ice stream, essentially a big glacier that extends... Mostly glaciers are just around the edges of ice sheets, but this one extends really far, almost to the centre. And no-one understands why. But ice streams are really important because, because ice sheets lose ice partly through melting from the surface, but also from glaciers and ice streams flowing out to the sea and then carving and losing things to icebergs. And we can kind of model as temperature rises, how much that's going to affect melting. But there's a lot that we don't know about how these ice streams behave. Why some places um, there are ice streams flowing and other places the ice sheet is really frozen solid to the bedrock. It's the first time anybody's ever drilled into an ice stream to understand uh, how the ice is flowing and what are the controls at the base of the ice sheet that mean that it's flowing there. And so from then from being there, then we realise more and more that part of what we can do is use our images of the deeper Earth to understand how hot the Earth is and how much heat is flowing out of the surface of the Earth and how that might be part of the control on why the ice sheet is flowing so much. So things like that, that uh, without actually meeting these different scientists and talking to them that you don't even understand uh, how your science can work together uh so it was really exciting to to be there and and i think over the next few years as we're doing that more and more i think we'll have seen more and more collaborations between our science
0: dr kate salway thank you for joining us today and thank you for being one of our special guests for national science week 2019
1: that's my pleasure thanks very much for having me excellent
0: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective